in our journey through the Bible. This is our fourth session. Uh, we've made it as far as the book of Exodus. We've spent three weeks looking at uh, Genesis, such an important part of Scripture as uh, we've been covering. Let's just bow our hearts before we uh, jump into the study this morning. Heavenly Father, once again, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the countless men and women who gave their lives and, Lord, travailed so hard to ensure that we have the scriptures passed down to us faithfully. And, Father, help us not to be negligent with your word, not to just leave it on a shelf and choose to do other things with our time, but, Lord, to diligently read and study your word. And, Lord, as we do so, we pray that through your spirit we would grow in knowledge and grace. Lord, we want to know more of you, more of our wonderful, awesome creator. Lord, more of your incredible plan of salvation. Lord, that we may be more in awe of you, that you would come and rescue us. And so, Father, as we continue this morning studying through your word, Lord, just illuminate the pages of scripture to us, we pray. Give us a deeper love and respect for your word. Lord, help us never to be afraid to just take your word as it is. Lord, we don't need man's interpretation. We simply need your Holy Spirit to unveil to us these wonderful truths that you have recorded for us. So, Lord, we just commit this time to you now for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so far... The first session, as I said, we looked at creation, the fall of man. The second section, session, we went on to look at Abel, the flood, Babel, all these incredibly foundational um, areas of scripture. It's amazing that some churches regard the first 11 chapters of Genesis as, in fact, as one, um, I won't mention Steve Chalk's name, but he said to me personally, um, that is Hebrew poetry penned in Babylon. I mean, just mind-blowing. These people would uh, like to see themselves as uh, theologians and scholars and so on. Um, crazy. Session three, though, uh, we looked at the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph. And as we said, it's interesting and encouraging sometimes to see that the likes of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we find they made mistakes. They got it wrong. They didn't respond always when God said, move, do this, do that. And God was forever trying to move them and get them to the place he wanted them to be. Sounds a little bit like us, doesn't it? The way that God often works in our lives. And sometimes we're so reluctant and then we look back and we see what God was trying to do. But we've ended up, as we finished the book of Genesis, with the children of Israel in Egypt. We're looking at this uh, session this morning then, at the first 12 chapters of the book of Exodus, um, where we're going to be introduced to Moses, and then Moses comes and stands before the ruler of the world, effectively, and presents God's request to him, to let his people go. And then, uh, obviously, Pharaoh's subsequent refusal and the plagues that then are unleashed upon the land of Egypt. And we'll look at those in a moment. The portion of scripture that we're covering, um, this, this section, I mean, we've seen already a, a huge amount of history covered in the book of Genesis. Um, and we're looking now at this period of time that will take us up, really, to uh, the Exodus this morning and next week uh, on from there. So just a, a lot of history is being covered. 
But the book of Exodus itself is one of the most practical and personal books in the Bible. And I'll explain a little bit about what I mean by that in a moment. There was a, a great quote I heard um, many years ago. Um, someone asked this question, If you're not yet willing to be changed by God, are you willing to be made willing? I think it's a really important question because sometimes there is a reluctance in our hearts. We see that Pharaoh just hardened his heart against the things of God. Didn't want to know, didn't want to change. But what about us? Are we willing, if God points out the things in our lives that need to be changed, are we willing for God to perform that surgery in us? And we'll see as we go through that although we're dealing with an historical account, it's so applicable to us. The book begins effectively with a nation in slavery and ends with God dwelling in their midst. Exodus really is the book of salvation because that's what it deals with in terms of the typology that we see here. The Hebrew title of the book um, really just comes from the opening sentence. These are the names. And actually it's just a continuation of the book of Genesis. Uh, The book of Genesis ends and we just jump straight into Exodus almost seamlessly. Uh, Again, evidence that we have one author, Moses, being uh, uh, that person that compiled this work for us and gave us this record. Um, In the the Greek and the Latin Vulgate, um, the title is Departure or Going Out, and from that, of course, that we get Exodus. Um, The theme of the book is deliverance, redemption, our salvation. And of course, as I said, the author is Moses, written somewhere around 1600 BC, to give you some idea of uh, time frames, about 1600 years before Jesus. It's the second book of the Bible, uh, obviously the second book of the Torah, the Torah being the first five books, very much venerated by the Jews. There's 40 chapters in the book that we'll uh, be going through. Um, there's 1,213 verses. Interestingly, there's 129 verses of fulfilled prophecy in this book. And there's a couple of verses of unfulfilled prophecy as well. We see models and types abounding as we go through this. Uh, again, you know, if you're going to build a, a, a building, in fact, where I work in London, just opposite, opposite us, they have a is, a is a company that make models of what London's going to look like when the various projects that are going on uh, have been finished, uh, and they've built these incredible models so we can see what it's going to be like. Um, and that's exactly what a model is. It's something that points to something else. And of course, throughout the book of Exodus, in fact, throughout the whole Bible, we see these types, these models, pointing to something much bigger, much greater. And nearly all of these things have their fulfillment in Christ. The tabernacle, which we'll be looking at next time, being one of those. There's 827 commands given. And there's 240 predictions in the book. 28 promises. And uh, the most uh, commonly recurring phrase is this, let my people go, as Moses comes and presents his request, or God's request to Pharaoh. Now, the way we need to look at Exodus is in at least three ways. Firstly, it is a book of history. We'll comment on that in just a moment. But it's also a book of prophecy in an incredible way. And finally, it's a book of devotional typology. What do we mean by that? Really, it's a book that tells us the story of our lives. It it just shows us how we are. It exposes the kind of problems we have, the the attitude issues that we deal with. 
And how God, by his incredible grace, rescued us from slavery. We'll talk in a moment. In terms of history, in the 1800s, the book of Exodus, like a lot of scripture, was seen by many to be myth and uh, there was no evidence. One of the problems, of course, is that a lot of people looked at the base of Mount Sinai and they said, well, there's no evidence that you know, a couple of million people ever camped here. Well, there wouldn't be because they didn't camp there. And we'll cover that as we go through. Um, the monastery on top of Mount Sinai, St. Catherine's Monastery, was named by um, uh, this lady, Helena. We'll talk a little bit more about her as we go through in subsequent sessions and uh, the damage that she's done um, to history and scripture. And they, of course, as I said, there was no sign of the wanderings in the area where they were looking, so they concluded that Exodus, therefore, wasn't valid. But in the 1900s, it was seen as a, a real possibility. There was some evidence starting to come to light. In the 1960s, there was discoveries, discoveries of a place, um, this uh, tell or hill, um, Ed Darba, or also known as Arvis. In the uh, 1980s, Ron Wyatt reported uh, the find of the real Mount Sinai in Arabia. A lot of people have a problem with that. Um, I know personally a Bible college not too far from here. Uh, and my brother-in-law, when he was at Bible College there, um, was talking to them and challenging them about this. And they said, oh, no, 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 no. It was the Sinai, uh, you know, Mount Sinai is in the Sinai Peninsula. And they would not budge. And presented with Paul's comment in the book of Galatians that Sinai is in Arabia, well, they didn't know what to do with that. So we'll deal with some of these things as we go on. But um, in the 90s, Bob Cornuke, Larry Williams and others brought out hard, hard evidence from Mount Sinai, the real Mount Sinai in Arabia, and we'll enjoy looking at that uh, in subsequent sessions. Uh, in '95, there was a book by a man by the name of David Roll called A Test of Time, uh, the Bible from Myth to History, um, how our views change when suddenly more evidence becomes available. It never ceases to, to kind of be a kind of source of humour, really, in a sense, that people love to criticise the Bible. This couldn't happen, this didn't happen, this was myth, and so on, and then suddenly a discovery is found and they have to backtrack. Um, many a, a critic's hammer has been blunted on the anvil of God's word. And really, from the 2000s onwards, it is, it is provable certainty. Uh, further discoveries have been made. Um, amazing discoveries in Arabia and we'll be showing some interesting pictures over the coming weeks uh, looking at some of these things uh, incredible artifacts found around this mountain in uh, Saudi Arabia today um, interestingly in Daniel chapter 12 verse 4 it talks there about in the, the latter days knowledge increasing and various people have various understandings of that but it's interesting that in the days we live in Knowledge really is increasing, and certainly everything we have from true science as opposed to the, the mythology that you know, masquerades as science often. Um, but the true science we find is just continually confirming Scripture to be true. So it's a book of history. It's also a book of prophecy. It foreshadows the time of Jacob's troubles. That's a phrase from the book of Jeremiah. Pharaoh being a type of Antichrist. We see these plagues coming upon the world. Israel, though, are kept safe by the hand of God, miraculously. We'll deal with more of those types as we go through. But in terms of typology for us, well, we also were born in slavery, in sin, just as the Israelites were. God's grace has brought their deliverance and also has brought our deliverance. But there was nothing they could have done about this. This was all God 
It was God's initiative. God starts the whole process and finishes the whole process, and just as it is with us. Ultimately, for the Israelites, it was faith in the shed blood of a lamb that was what saved them. And of course, the same for us. And we see this election that God had chosen them. And Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And of course, the beauty of this is it doesn't violate our free will. We still have that free will and that freedom to choose. But God is outside of time. He knows the end from the beginning. So on the surface, we've got the deliverance of the children of Israel from captivity in Egypt. Their miraculous journey through the Red Sea. Their struggle through the wilderness before eventually reaching the promised land. But underneath, we see our own miraculous deliverance from the cruel taskmasters of Egypt, our Egypt, the sinful life, and so on. Our path through the waters of baptism, identifying ourselves with Christ's death on our behalf, and the subsequent struggle that ensues as we begin our own wilderness wanderings. And just like the Israelites, we often yearn for the old life, for the things of Egypt, if you like, only to see God's miracles and provision time and time again. Finally to end up at the promised land, and that's where we're going. The Lord is taking us to this place that he's prepared for us, a land flowing, as it were, with milk and honey. Chapter 1, we're going to see the setting the stage for the whole of the book, really. Uh, chapter 2, we're going to see Moses trying to do things in his own strength. And then chapter 3 and 4, God then calls Moses. When Moses has got to the end of his own ability, then God says, right now I can use you. Chapter 5 through 11, then we see Moses coming before, as I say, the ruler of the world. And we shouldn't underestimate just the significance of these, how incredible this is. You know, if somebody today were to go before, I mean, arguably you could say that uh, Obama, the American president, is one of the most powerful people. If somebody were to go and stand before him and demand, you know, that the the Christians all around the world would stop being persecuted and if Obama had the power to do that. You know, that's the kind of thing that we're looking at. It's a really huge thing going on. And then we'll conclude in a little while looking at the actual deliverance itself, which is really, we start to see that uh, really take place from chapter 12 onwards. So... Exodus chapter 1, we can't obviously read every verse for the sake of time, but um, verses 6 and 7 read, Joseph died, and all his brethren, and all that generation, and the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, and multiplied and waxed exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now, we looked at Bible study on Thursday night, how many commentaries, and uh, I had my hands up because even myself got it wrong, People will talk about this 400-year period of time or a 430-year period of time. Um, And people say that the children of Israel were in Egypt for that time. That's not the case. And we went through looking scripturally at the evidence to show that's not the case. This actual period of oppression in Egypt lasts for somewhere less than 128 years. Um, somewhere between 80 years and 128 years. But it wasn't the whole of that period. In fact, the children of Israel only spent 215 years in Egypt in total. And uh, if you want more information, come speak to me. And uh, well, I'm happy to go through that again. It's a very exciting thing. It's one of those cases where so often we go with what other people have said. But when you look at the details in the Bible, um, everything's very, very clear. There's no ambiguity there. 
Um, but it's, we find that the children of Israel started increasing, the population explosion, that causes a problem for the Egyptians. Because we know that this was going to happen, promised by God to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob back in Genesis 46. God spoke unto Israel, unto Jacob, in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here am I. And he said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will make there of thee a great nation. God had already promised that this was going to happen. This is all part of God's plan. And there's at least three distinct reasons why God allowed the nation to move down there. We looked at that briefly last time and we were talking again on Thursday at the Bible study. Why Egypt? Well, one of the key reasons was to keep the bloodline pure. We've already been looking at this uh, very real threat that these, the offspring of these angelic beings, the women of the earth, posed to the, the seed. That Satan had this plan to try and stop the seed of the woman coming down to eventually the Messiah being born. And of course, Satan didn't know when that was going to come. So he was absolutely intent on trying to stop any possibility. If we can corrupt this family, then we can put an end to all of that. For Israel, of course, they would not and could not intermarry. God had made this very clear to them. Um, Israel was an abomination to the Egyptians, but actually by their own making. It's very interesting what Joseph says. He's very emphatic. He says to the brothers, and again, Genesis 46, It shall come to pass when Pharaoh shall call you and say, What is your occupation? That you shall say, Thy servant's trade has been about cattle from our youth, even until now, both we and also our fathers that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination unto the Egyptians. You see, Joseph, it had been very easy for them to say when Pharaoh said, what do you do for a living? And they said, well, we do this, we do that. And Joseph said, make sure you tell Pharaoh what you do, because that will be an abomination and you'll be kept separate. Joseph had the, the foresight and the understanding, no doubt, of the prophecies that had already been given to realize that his nation needed to be kept separate. Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, we're told, Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. A couple of things that we need to highlight here. Firstly, we have Joseph's pharaoh, the pharaoh that appointed Joseph, the one that had the nasty dreams and Joseph comes and interprets. He becomes the pharaoh and no doubt Joseph outlived him. Pharaohs typically at this time only had about a, a 40 year or so life expectancy because of a number of reasons. And then we have this new king that arises that doesn't know Joseph. And it's his daughter, seemingly, that will raise Moses. And there may have been other pharaohs in amongst this as well. And then we have another king. And the Greek here implies a, a different kind. In um, the New Testament, if you look at um, uh, Acts chapter 7, Stephen gives us this great account, uh, and uh, he's speaking to the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin. And so after the Pharaoh who'd begun the bondage had died, now that's the one again who had called for the children, the baby boys to be murdered, and so on. 
He'd obviously passed off the scene. If you remember, the Lord speaks to Moses and explains that those that sought your life have now died. So we know that Pharaoh passes off the scene. But there's another Pharaoh that comes onto the scene. And Acts tells us, Acts uh, chapter 7, verse 17, uh, Luke records, and this is Stephen speaking, but when the time of the promise, you notice straight away, God had got this all planned out. We tend to think so often our things that go on in life are very haphazard. God had got this all planned. When the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. Now notice what happens. It's at the time that God says, right, now we're getting ready. It's at that point the people multiply. The oppression begins. That king, initially the first pharaoh that starts that oppression, dies. And then we read verse 18, till another king arose which knew not Joseph. Now this, the word in the Greek is heteros, is a different kind. Now, on the surface we would just move on from that, but if we look in Isaiah 52 verse 4, we see something very interesting. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down a fourth time into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. We find that this Pharaoh, that is the one that Moses will go and speak to, was not Egyptian in origin himself. He was an Assyrian. Historically, this has also been verified. We have a period of time where there was Assyrian uh, kings, the Hyksos dynasty, uh, where there were non-Egyptian rulers of the land. In Isaiah 10, we read there, verse 22 onwards, uh, For though thy people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. The um, consumption decreed shall overflow with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts shall make a consumption even determined in the midst of the land. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people that dwellest in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrian. He shall smite thee with a rod, and shall lift up his staff against thee, after the manner of Egypt. For yet a very little while, and the indignation shall cease, and mine anger in their destruction. God is speaking here of something yet future. He's speaking of the Antichrist, the one who will come and oppress Israel, who's referred to as here the Assyrian. But we're told that he will be just like in the same manner of that which took place in Egypt. So we see even from this scripture that we have what, what's going on in Egypt as a type looking forward to this period of tribulation, this period of Jacob's trouble, when we have this uh, Assyrian, and in what way he'll be connected with Assyria, we don't know yet. And as we, as we go forward, the Lord will no doubt reveal those things. I believe the church will be gone before Antichrist is unveiled. I think Second uh, Thessalonians makes that clear. But this Pharaoh then is a type of Antichrist. He's a world leader. We see these signs and lying wonders. Not done directly by him, but done by his prophets, his priests. We see that he oppresses the Jews. And God sends two witnesses to preach. Of course, in the case here, we have Moses and Aaron. In the book of Revelation, it would appear we have Moses and Elijah. God brings plagues in judgment, both on Egypt and ultimately during the time of tribulation. 
God ultimately will deliver the Jews. So we see these incredible models being laid down. Exodus chapter 1 verse 11, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. So they tried to stop Israel growing and so on. Uh, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, we're told. And then Pharaoh brings this command that every son who's born shall be cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. Well, it just so happens that there is a son born. son born of the tribe of Levi. Levi has a number of children recorded in scripture. We have uh, Koath, uh, one of his sons. He has a son by the name of Amram. Amram has a son called Moses. And incidentally, Amram happens to marry, um, effectively, his auntie, this Jochebed. Um, and Jochebed becomes the mother of Moses. Uh, Exodus uh, chapter 6, verse 20, Amram took him Jochebed, his father's sister to wife, and she bare him Aaron and Moses. And the years of the life of Amram were 137 years. So, we see now in the midst of all this turmoil as Egyptians are trying to stop this population increase. And of course, whether Pharaoh understood, I doubt very much, but he's being manipulated by Satan to wipe out the male children. Why? To stop the seed of the woman. You see how intense Satan was in trying to stop God's plan. A three months old Moses, we find, is placed into this ark um, that word occurs uh, uh, only a couple of times in scripture here and also in Genesis it's this kind of place of, of safety and so on why do his parents do this? well we're told in Hebrews 20, 11, 23 by faith Moses when he was born was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command I don't believe it's just that oh he's lovely isn't he you know that's what all mum and dads do isn't it I think there's something more I think they recognise something because we're told it's by faith what they do they do trusting God that God is going to preserve this life for some great purpose that God has in mind so we see that his parents feared God Miriam Moses' sister watches and waits over this ark and then we find that this, uh, the ark found in the bulrushes by Pharaoh's daughter. Miriam then comes along and says, Oh, you found a baby. Uh, do you want me to go and find something to look after it for you? And so Pharaoh's daughter says, That's a great idea. And she agrees. And so, actually, Moses' mum is the one that looks after him incredibly. How wonderful God is, rewarding that faith. So, in fact, she's actually paid wages to bring up her own son. It's amazing how God works these things. And then Moses, or Moshe is his name. His name means to draw out. Uh, again, what an interesting name, uh, because that's exactly what he does. Re- you know, literally rescuing the people of Israel. Stephen again, in the back into the book of Acts, says, When he was a full 40 years old, it came uh, into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. So it hadn't been kept from Moses, his, his, his Jewish roots, as it were. And he decides he's going to go out one day and see one of them suffer wrong. He defended him and avenged him that was oppressed. So he sees an Egyptian oppressing one of his countrymen. He steps in. He kills the Egyptian. And verse 25 says, For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them. But they understood not. You see, it wasn't God's time. And Moses 
as so often we do, we're stepping out with a great zeal, but it wasn't God's timing. We must always be careful we never run ahead of God. God is never in a hurry. We live a life that's always in a hurry. We're so used to, you know, microwave instant foods and everything else. And anything that takes a little bit of time. You know, if you don't get your pizza delivered in half an hour, then you expect to have your money back, don't you? That's the world we live in. But of course, God isn't in a hurry. And we need to be patient and wait for God's timing. Moses wasn't ready to do the thing that God was calling him to do. In Hebrews 11.24, we read there, By faith Moses, when he was uh, come of years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer the affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. This is an incredible revelation for us because we read that Moses made a decision I don't want all the wealth and all the pomp and everything that I'm being given here by the the Egyptians I mean Moses it seems was being geared and lined up to be the next Pharaoh now wouldn't you and I think well maybe I'll, I'll wait and when I'm in that position I'll use my power for good just I need the power first you know but Moses doesn't do that. He puts his trust in God and says, No, Lord, I don't want that. I don't want a, those pleasures of sin. Even if it's good, even if it's be, be good for me or I enjoy it, I don't want those things. He is glad to accept the, the reproach that his brethren experience. And the writer to the Hebrews makes it uh, this interesting link that in doing this, Moses is esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. So the land that they were dwelling in was Goshen. Moses then has to flee after killing this Egyptian. He goes down into Midian. It's interesting that when he's there, um, he meets a woman at a well. There's a number of wells in Scripture. Genesis 24, Rebecca is found at a well. Um, um, so this is where Isaac meets there. Um, Genesis 29, Jacob meets Rachel by a well. Uh, Exodus 2, Moses meets the daughter of Jethro, uh, talking about here by a well. And John 4, Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at a well. So there's a number of these kind of these relationships, these encounters that occur uh, in this kind of situation. Um, It's interesting, of course, because we find that this young lady that Moses meets invites her back and. Moses is invited to become part of the family. I mean, we find that Jethro has seven daughters. Suddenly a young man comes and he's like, please stay, stay, you know, help me take over payments on some of these. Moses, of course, though, we see a number of ways as a type of Christ. Of course, he was rejected by Israel the first time. He travels to Midian. Midian actually means strife. Jesus entered into this world for us. He, Moses, takes one of seven to be his Gentile bride. And he'll return with his bride to rescue his people. This is the wonderful picture we have. Meanwhile, back in Egypt, the oppression is getting worse. We get to this fulfillment, this 430 years. 
Israel's finally crying out to God, and actually, in fact, it's probably about 429 years at this point, because we've got these plagues to go. But this is the timing we're now at. And it's God's time, in the process of time we read. Some, so often it's kind of the pressure of the circumstances that drives us to our knees to pray. And it's a sad thing that that's the case, but very often it's when we're in a bit of a predicament that we go to the Lord. You know, we should get in the habit of going to the Lord regardless, whether we're being blessed or not. Back in Arabia, Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. I'm sure at this point Moses didn't know where he was uh, stumbling upon. Horeb means desolate. It's called, as you've just seen there, the mountain of God. Um, links, obviously, with Mount Sinai, which means thorns. It's all part of one mountain range um, that we're looking at here. And again, we've mentioned earlier, typically located in the Sinai Peninsula, but the Bible states that it's in Arabia. Galatians 4.25, Paul makes that clear. And we'll look in subsequent weeks at some of these things, but there's incredible discoveries that have been made at these places. Paul, interestingly enough, we're told in Galatians 1.7, goes down and spends three years in Arabia. This is after his conversion. Why? Paul was a rabbi. Paul had grown up with the law. Suddenly, he's confronted face to face with Jesus Christ. And he's got to unravel and get rid of all the tradition that he'd learned. And look at the law again and say, well then, what is the purpose of the law? And I believe the reason Paul spends three years in Arabia is because he went back to the place the law was given. And he spent that time there with the Lord, probably asking a lot of why questions. And when Paul comes back, and we read in the rest of his uh, letters in the New Testament, and particularly in Galatians, Paul now goes, got it, I know why the law was given. The law was our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. The law sets a standard that we can't keep. All Paul's life, he'd been trying to come up with ways in which we can keep the law. As part of this, uh, this pharisaical mind, the, the way that they would try and invent kind of ways of circumventing the law so that they could hopefully keep the law but of course they couldn't and Paul suddenly realises that you can't keep the law that's the purpose so we're looking you've got Egypt there on the left hand side you can see you've got the traditional Sinai Peninsula as it's referred to but then you've got over on the right hand side Arabia or Midian as it was known in those days that's approximately the side of the traditional Mount Sinai. The real Mount Sinai is in that region there. And it's interesting, the, the Red Sea, uh, well, there's two arms of the Red Sea. Um, there's uh, the one you can see on the left, and then also this Gulf of Aqaba uh, on the right as well, um, as it splits at the top there. And this is looking down at this mountain range, and we've got a whole uh, area there, blackened. You can see that's a satellite image, and you can see that it's very, very black and uh, so on. Um, it's been burnt. It's been superheated. Um, people who have been there have brought back specimens of this rock, and it's been superheated. This is an area where they don't have rainfall as such, such a small amount per year. Uh, it wasn't lightning strikes. It's not volcanic. Uh, we'll look at that next time in detail. We find that God had heard and seen, he knew the sorrow of the people in, in uh, Egypt, as they were crying out to him. And he comes with this 
two-part plan, to deliver them from wrath and to deliver them to good. This is a wonderful thing because it's the same for us. God has come to deliver us from wrath. And that's why Jesus' blood was shed on the cross. But it's also to deliver us to good. And God is doing this work in us, this work of sanctification, setting us apart, filling us with his Holy Spirit. So 40 years after his first attempt, Moses now comes back to the land, being sent by God. This experience he's had at the burning bush, meeting God face to face. God reveals who he is. He says, I am that I am. The self-existent one. Moses is ready. The training's complete now. And it's interesting because Moses just got to that place that he knows, I can't do this. And that's where God wants us to be. Because then it's not about flesh. It's not about what we can achieve. Moses knows that he can't take the glory for this. God is going to get all the glory. And God chooses to use this man to accomplish his purposes. You know, there's this kind of interesting slant. Was Moses being humble or was it actually pride when he says who am I I can't do this well they they might not believe me I'm not eloquent and he says send someone else you know some of you and I would think oh well humility that's pride that's that's saying God you can't do this in me you can't do this work there's an arrogance in that not a humility God assures Moses that he'll be with him. Uh, He promises that Aaron is going to support him as well. And then Jethro releases him. He makes his way back to Egypt. We read in Exodus 4, The Lord said to Moses, When you go to return to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand. But notice what God says, But I will harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. Or if Moses had just listened to that, it would save him a few problems a little bit later on. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. This is back in chapter 4. God is already lining things up for what's going to happen. Pharaoh's heart, of course, will be hardened. And Moses is told of the uh, ultimate plague that is going to come. But en route back then to Egypt, there's a very strange situation where the Lord meets him, as it were. It seems to be of a night time and effectively is about to kill Moses. Isn't this the one that God's going to use to deliver? And we read that it's all because Moses had not taken and circumcised his son and his wife Zipporah suddenly realizes what's going on here and she goes ahead they circumcise his son Moses was one of the covenant people you know and he's got to accept that covenant if he's going to come under the blessing of that covenant interesting what separates the firstborn of Israel from the firstborn of Egypt well it's quite simply it was compliance with that covenant that God had made 
And what makes you and I different from the world? It's a covenant that God has made, a new testament in the blood of Christ. And afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. Pharaoh is saying, we've got lots of gods in Egypt. I don't know who your God is. Why should I respond? Well, this command is very clear. It's the first of seven commands to let the people go that we find at this point. Again, who is God? In Exodus 5.3, they respond. And they said, the God of the Hebrews has met us. Let us go, we pray thee, three days journey into the desert and sacrifice unto the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence and with the sword. They say that it's the God of the Hebrews. This is how they identify this God. The word Hebrew, incidentally, is used 34 times in the Old Testament. It's not a, a label like Jew uh, implying ethnicity. Um, it's a title denoting citizenship status and that's who they're saying they are it means one from beyond or one who crosses over uh, one who went from place to place if you like a wanderer or an alien which is exactly what they are it actually comes from the name Eber back in Genesis 10 where we have that list of the table of nations uh, as descendant of Eber uh, this wandering is the idea uh, of this line of Seth down to Abraham and uh, incidentally, uh, he was the father of Peleg. Peleg name, name means divided. And he lived, interestingly, uh, 430 years after the birth of Peleg. Whether there's any significance in that 430, I'll let you uh, decide. Um, as we just said earlier, the Hebrews will live 430 years in affliction in Canaan and Egypt in this period of wandering. So there's a lot wrapped up in that name Hebrew. Uh, maybe worthy of a bit further study if you want to. So anyway, Pharaoh mocks this request of Aaron. He makes their life harder, takes away the straw. Says obviously uh, you, you're idle, you, you know, you're not busy enough. So takes away the straw, expects the same quota. Straw of course was used for making um, bricks and so on at that time. But the elders of the land then go back to Moses and complain. You see, they wanted deliverance without difficulty. And doesn't that speak of so many within the church today? You see, they wanted freedom as long as it didn't cost them anything. And we've got a social gospel today, this prosperity gospel, the emerging gospel, all of these things. They don't talk about sacrifice. They don't talk about repentance. They don't talk about cost. It's all about making our lives better. Giving us something that's going to make us happy. And of course, very similar to the situation with the elders in Egypt at this time. Moses gets frustrated. Because things have just got worse. And he says, Lord, why have thou so evil entreated these people? Why is it that you have sent me? Why even bother sending me, Lord, if you're going to make it worse? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to these people. Neither has thou delivered thy people at all. It's great here because God doesn't bother with his uh, answering his request. He just carries on if you look at the text. See, 
what we've got here is this kind of action and reaction, and then Moses just jumps to this conclusion. I've done something, this is what's happened, and, and, and therefore, you see, for God's in the Word. You remember I mentioned a moment ago, God had already said that Pharaoh's heart was going to be hardened. He'd forgotten the promises of God. We need to really take hold of the things that God says. You know, we should expect trials and tribulations. Because that's what the Lord has said we will experience. Those who live godly in Christ Jesus will experience those things. I love this quote by John Piper. I don't agree with everything he says, but I love this. He says, The taproot out of which sprouts all the weeds of sin is the taproot of unbelief in the promises of God. When you trust or believe in a promise of God, you glorify God. In fact, trusting somebody's promise is the most fundamental honor you can do that person. The reverse is also true. The greatest contempt you can bring down upon a person is to say to them, I can't trust you. So when we don't trust the promise of God, we bring contempt upon him. We give him a vote of no confidence. Well, God doesn't bother entertaining Moses' little gripe here. This was what God has said. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. So now, again, understanding that prophetic perspective, God answers. He doesn't address the complaint of the elders or Moses. He just reiterates his plan and promise. Now, see what I'm going to do. It's effectively what he says. And God now moves in the course of his own will. Exodus 7 verse 11. Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and did so as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants. It became a servants. It became a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called the wise men and sorcerers, now the magicians of Egypt, and they also did in like manner with their enchantments. It's interesting to see what happens here. You see, we find that Moses and Aaron produced these miracles, but then we find that they copied them. The sorcerers, the enchantments, they're priests. They copy the same things. That's what Satan does. He copies. He imitates. He doesn't create. And it's just a point there as well. Deception will come in the form of imitation. You know, it's amazing within the church how many people think that, you know, we're not going to be deceived and so on. And they, they think that deception would come in such a glaring, obvious form that we well, that's not deception. Have you ever noticed you never get a forged nine-pound note? Because we know it's a forgery. You see, it's always something that's very close to the original. And people will say, oh, but they, they, they seem like Christians. You know, they're, they're such a loving church. They do this, they do this. Yeah, well, be careful because there's a lot of imitation out there. He hardened Pharaoh's heart and hearkened not unto them as the Lord has said. We'll talk about this hardening of Pharaoh's heart in a little while. Um, it comes actually from a Hebrew word meaning to fasten, to seize, to confirm effectively is what he's saying. And uh, we'll cover more of that in a moment. Just a point though, <laughs> because God is not doing something with Pharaoh here that's unjust. And I love the, the whole idea. The sun has its effects on clay that is diametrically opposed to that which it has on wax. It will harden one and melt the other. It depends on the nature of the material. 
And so it is with our hearts. So we then get to these plagues. The first group, we've got three groups of plagues. The first group, we have the waters turned to blood. And this mirrors Revelation 16, verse 4. We have frogs that come upon the land. Revelation 16, verse 12 to 13. And then we have these lice. Now, I'll explain lice, what they actually are uh, in the context in a moment. But Revelation 6, verse 8, would seem to suggest of this pestilence. The second group we find, there's flies. Revelation uh, 9, 11 would seem to allude to that. Livestock then are uh, struck. Revelation 8, verse 7 to 13. And then we have these boils. No warning is given of that, by the way. Notice that the third one in each group, there's no warning. Revelation 16, verse 2, was suggested this as well. And then, group 3, we have this hail. Revelation 11, 9, and also 16, 21. Hail being this kind of judgment, these kind of hailstones, stoning being a, a punishment for blasphemy, and so on. Locust, Revelation 9.3, we read of that in Revelation. And then darkness, Revelation 6.12 and also chapter 8 verse 12. So we see a forerunner of all that is going to be occurring now in the land of Egypt. And again, just notice that that third one in each group, significantly there is no warning, it just comes. What God is doing, though, in these plagues, it's not just random, you know, let's just make life difficult and hope they'll give in. I think a lot of people tend to think that's what God's doing. No, God was actually judging their gods and showing the Egyptians that their gods were false gods. Each one of these plagues specifically addresses one of the Egyptian deities in one way or another. God... When we get to the commandments in Exodus 20, we'll state that you shall have no other gods before me. Now, some people think, you know, if you kind of put it on a list, there should be nobody higher than God. Of course, that's true. But no other gods in my presence. As we sit here this morning, you're before me. You're, you're there. And God's saying, I don't want any other gods in my presence. So the first one, we have this water turned to blood. Now, for the Egyptians... Oh, the Nile was worshipped. The Nile brought them life. We have the goddess, goddess Isis in uh, Egyptian uh, mythology and so on. This whole fertility in life. Life came out of the river. And so God strikes the very source of this life. The fish that was in the river died. The river stank. The Egyptians could not drink of the water of the river. And there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Amazingly, various magicians and so on do the same. They can't clear it up, they can't solve the problem, but they can imitate. We then get to the second plague of these frogs. Frogs, again, this uh, theophany, an appearance, if you like, of the, the goddess Hecht. This strange, this, this goddess was believed to have been married to God. So the wife of God, in a sense, is the, their understanding. And this goddess had this frog head. You know, I think if you were God and you could choose a wife, you probably wouldn't go one with a head like a frog. But that's what they did. And they worshipped this goddess. 
And of course, because of this, frogs were very um, uh, revered. They wouldn't kill frogs, just as in Indian culture, for example, today, there's animals they will not kill because of the, the animal, they, they revere them. She was the wife of this creator god, uh, is what they believed. Again, fashioned, uh, he fashioned man, this, this creator god of theirs, and the gods on his potter's wheel. That was what they believed. And so now, this judgment of frogs comes upon them. And the problem is, they can't now kill these frogs because they revere them, they're holy, so they've now got frogs everywhere. They're opening their bed covers to get into bed at night, and there's frogs, and in the bathroom, and in the fridge, and imagine it. Pharaoh's sorcerers duplicate the plague. <laughs> It just makes me laugh. Pharaoh, guess what we've done? We've made more frogs. <laughs> Again, they couldn't make them go away. It's the trouble with uh, these lying signs and wonders. They just they don't make things any better. Pharaoh then comes with his first offer. And he seems to be giving in at this point to Moses. And he's like, anything to get me out of this mess. I'm just like, just take them away. Of course, the problem here is Pharaoh's heart. What he offers is a retreat for relief rather than repentance for reconciliation. And there's a massive difference. He wasn't just trying to appease, or he was trying to appease Moses that he could get relief. He wasn't truly repentant that he make it right with God. Some of us in situations in our lives maybe going through a difficult time and kind of we retreat and we say well Lord okay I'll, I'll stop doing that or I'll, you know whatever it be in our lives in the hope that's going to bring us some sort of relief from the circumstances or whatever else that's not what God is calling us to God doesn't want us just to backtrack for a little bit just to make things okay God is calling us to turn around and go in the other direction you know if we're battling with sin in our life at the moment it's not a case of stop doing it for a little while just to get things settled. Turn away from it. That we can be reconciled to God. The plague, obviously, is ended. And then we carry on. The third one is this lice. Interestingly enough, um, we're at this point, uh, let me tell you where we are. We're Exodus chapter 8. Uh, verse 16, if you want to make the notes, if you want to mark this in your Bible, the first plague we get will start in Exodus chapter 7, verse 17 is really where that kicks in. And then Exodus chapter 8, verse 1 is where the second plague, the frogs comes, um, there's judgment on their God is hecked. Um, and then we find uh, Exodus chapter 8, verse 16 is where our, our third one comes in now. Um, and we have these, um, these lice and so on. Um, this just is very interesting. We've got this dust here. Now, typically what the priests of Egypt would do, um, they would throw this dust in the air. Um, and this dust, would then, wherever it blew, would become a blessing. And it seems to be something similar that's going on here. This dust um, becoming lice, and this is a kind of a direct act of creation. But this lice, this uh, this goddess here, is Gib, this protector uh, god of the earth. They were obsessed with cleanliness, the Egyptians, 
they used to kind of shave their bodies all over every other day and suddenly they're now covered in this lice and so on and the implication is that this is not lice as we would think of it but fleas or something of that nature that would eat into the flesh the the wording in the hebrew implies is eating or biting Um, this is extremely unpleasant thing that's going on this is where the sorcerers kind of finally seem to see the light and they recognize that this is god working but Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's heart again just grows hard. It's firm. It's kind of it's like that as the sun shines upon uh, the clay. It's hardened rather than being melted. Why do the magicians fall short here? Well, again, counterfeit gods can only take you so far. They'll ultimately let you down. We get to these swarms. Um, the phrase we have uh, is often referred to as the flies here. It seems to be um, the scarab is what's in view. Um, insects were seen often as manifestations of the gods. And these scarabs are very interesting because they're, they're literally the dung beetle. And wherever you know, there was dung, all of a sudden these things would appear. And so they were perceived to have this power just to come from nothing. It was very central in the Egyptian worship. You've probably seen these kind of creatures, these uh, scarab things before. And it was also um, seen to have some power in terms of the sun. Because what a dung beetle would typically do is roll up some dung and push it along with its back legs into this kind of little ball. And so the Egyptians thought, well, that's a little bit like the sun as it comes across the heavens. And so they had this kind of worship of these, these creatures because of this. Um, now it's very interesting because at this point nothing like this this lice and so on doesn't take place in the homes of the Jews they're separate they're they're protected by the Lord through this period of time and now because of this Pharaoh comes back with another offer and he partially consents he says they can sacrifice in the land of Egypt you know this is what the devil does with us it's like, well, if you're going to be a Christian, okay, but just, you know, don't, don't have to leave the world. That's okay, and these things are okay. You don't have to get rid of those kind of things. You know, you can be a Christian, but with compromise. And that's really the, the subtle thing that's going on here. Of course, God says, let my people go, that they serve me in the wilderness. He wasn't out, completely out of Egypt altogether. There's a lot of uh, scriptures we could look at that uh, warn us of the compromise that comes from, well, we, we could stay here, I suppose, and it doesn't work that way. Pharaoh continually, we see, making and breaking these promises. And again, he changes his mind once this pain and uh, misery is over. We then get to the fifth plague. Um, these livestock are now killed. Egyptians worship many animals, the, the bull particularly, uh, the Apis bull uh, being one of them. Um, there's a, a representation there. Um, worth making a mental note of that. We'll see that next week on something very interesting. Um, we'll, we'll talk about it then. Um, but again, this is going to affect their trade. This is their industry. Um, this would be like a stock market crash. Uh, and the equivalent in our kind of culture for Egypt this was a, a really serious thing again his, Pharaoh's reaction well his heart becomes hard 
Then we get these boils. This was an attack on the worship of Imhotep. Imhotep, interestingly enough, aside from all of this, may well have been Joseph. And the legend of all of that then gets twisted and distorted into this kind of mythical character. Um, We looked at Bible study the other night. There's a lot of similarities between what historically we know of Imhotep and what we know of Joseph. Both preside over this seven years of famine, seven years of plenty. They both die at the same age. They weren't of Egyptian descent and all sorts of other interesting parallels that we can find. Nevertheless, that to one side for a moment. The um, priests and so on were seen to have this uh, power uh, to heal. And again, this worship of Imhotep, this kind of medical um, um, god, the one that would provide healing, the, the father of ancient Egyptian medicine is the way it was uh, um, put. Um, it's just interesting that we're told specifically that the magicians could not stand before Moses because of, the, because of the boils. So these are those supposedly with the power to heal, now they are afflicted. God is judging this whole stream of gods that they've got that they worship. And those that were supposed to have the cures are now themselves subject to this, and they recognize that God is involved. And again, we see this uh, problem uh, with Pharaoh. We're going to conclude, look at the whole thing with Pharaoh in just a second. But we then get to the seventh one, the hailstones. Again, God warns um, and his people um, have a choice. It's gather your livestock and every man into his home. And obviously, for those that do, their livestock is protected. Um, so much was uh, destroyed. And again, this is another judgment against the Egyptian goddess Nut uh, was part of this one. And God has got a promise similar to the final wrath of God, which we read in Revelation after the seventh bowl judgment. There, let's just look at Revelation 16.21. There fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, for the plague thereof was exceedingly great. There is a debate on the weight of these things. Some people say it was about 90 pounds. Some say it could be anything up to about 130, depending on the Greek or the Hebrew. You know, if one of those things hits you, you're not really bothered whether it's Greek or Hebrew. Those are the things that are coming on this world, though. And, you know, we can read these in a historical context, looking at what happened in Egypt. But the, the word of God tells us that this is the judgment that's coming on all those who reject Jesus Christ as their Messiah, as their Savior. Again, Pharaoh, so he's seemingly repenting, of course, not at all. Um, Pharaoh reverses his uh, uh, apparent repentance here. Again, with the word that's used here is his heart is made thick. Uh, it's confirmed in the position that it's in. Finally, we then get to the last couple of plagues. Locusts then attack the land. This is the worship of Nepri, the god of the harvest now. God attacks. Um, lots of historical references to these gods, of course. Um, and again, the, the question uh, to Pharaoh is, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? God is showing very clearly that all of the gods that Pharaoh worshipped, that the Egyptians worshipped, were not gods at all. And it's the same in the world today. You know, We can show people that the gods they worship are not really gods. They don't satisfy. They don't bring us what they sort of purport to do. 
And of course the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. We can provide the evidence, we can provide the proof, but it's still a heart issue. Pharaoh makes another offer. Um, this is after the plague of frogs and everything else. He says, you know, that's the first time you know, take the plague away, you can worship in the land and the, the swarm. He says, we'll stay in the country is the second time. And now this eighth plague, he says, well, why aren't you going to go alone? <laughs> it's like, well, that's not good. He's talking about just the men going and leaving the women and the families here. Um, that's not the case. That's a picture of a plague of locusts. Um, not a very pleasant sight I'm sure but that's nothing compared to what Israel itself uh, experienced Um, just as an aside that was what John the Baptist uh, typically would eat with a bit of honey Um, fried I guess I don't know you see again with Pharaoh there's a lot of emotional responses here rather than anything actually going on in his heart it's reaction to these things. There's no actual repentance. And you know, we can look at Pharaoh and we can be quite judgmental of Pharaoh because he, he was so hard in these things. But there's a lot of this stuff in us. You know, very often things go wrong and we can act in, in, in an emotional way. And sometimes our response can be a reaction rather than genuine repentance and really seeking the Lord and saying, Lord, what are you teaching me here? Is there something in my life that needs to change? Again, God hardens, confirms Pharaoh's heart in the position that it's already in. There's a lot of people in the world today that are in that kind of place. They've made their decision. They don't want God. You know, we read Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, no God. It's translated, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But actually what it's saying is, no God. I reject God. It's not saying God doesn't exist. It's saying, I don't want God. And that's what the Bible says a fool has done and Pharaoh here is doing that I don't want God he's seeing enough evidence enough proof finally we get to this plague of darkness and this uh, attack on the sun god Ra as this darkness is a darkness that's so gripping it can be felt again not on the land of Israel is God protects the nation of Israel through these again just as we see what happened and then finally, this next offer, the fourth offer, um, he's now seeking this negotiated settlement with God. He's got nothing to bargain with, of course. Um, so those are the kind of four offers. You know, and really looking at the, the parallel between Pharaoh says, oh, don't leave the land, or don't go too far, or don't take others with you, don't take possessions. They're kind of the four things that he, he offers as kind of concessions. I will agree if... And Satan, of course, is for us, you know, well, if you have to become a Christian, if you have to be a follower of Christ, well, don't change. You're right as you are. You know, well, if you, you know, don't be committed then. And certainly don't share your faith. Don't take others with you. And don't involve things. You know, you have all the stuff. That's okay. And we see Satan subtly doing exactly the same thing to try and stop us entering into a real, true, genuine walk by faith of Jesus Christ. But ultimately they will obey the will of God and leave nothing behind. All great people of God have that characteristic. And Moses' final conversation, well, we see again Pharaoh's heart all the way through fixed in place 
Um, Pharaoh pronounces his judgment on Moses, saying, you know, you're not going to see my face again. And Moses says, too right. <laughs> I'm not going to see your face again. Moses effectively is excluded from the Pharaoh's kingdom, as it were. And Moses acknowledges God ju- God's judgment on Pharaoh. And Pharaoh effectively excluded from God's kingdom. That's a far more serious situation. The Lord causes Israel to find favour in the sight of Egypt. So at this point, all these nine plagues have come upon Egypt. And suddenly the Egyptians are very benevolent. And they give to the Jews all the things that they want to take. Whatever they want, they're given. Effectively, Israel plunder the Egyptians. And they take jewellery, silver, gold, and all sorts of things. Which will be very significant as we move on as to what they did with that silver and that gold. There's a whole load of things that we can look at of the way that Pharaoh's heart was specifically hardened and it was this progression all the way through. So finally then, we get to the final plague. Because God had already said, the death of the firstborn. God said that Israel are my firstborn. Now... It takes place around about midnight. Interestingly enough, Jesus was also arrested around about that time. There's so many parallels that we start to see. God promises to put a difference between those that are his and those that are not. And that difference is the blood of a lamb. The blood of a lamb was to be shared. They were to put the blood on the lintels and the doorposts. And those who enter into those dwellings, those who go in by the blood, will be safe. Isaiah 46, 9-10, we read there, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. God tells the future in advance. This isn't a prediction, this is prophecy. Future just before we've got to it though. Now look at this, Colossians two sixteen seventeen. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink, or in respect of a holy day, or the new moon of Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. We're told by Paul in Colossians that these feast days that the Jews celebrated, which we're just about to see the first of them now, were a shadow, but the fulfilment of them was in Christ. Exodus 12, the first two verses, God switches the calendar. He says, what was your seventh month is going to be your first month, and what was your first month is now going to be your seventh month. The month in question is the month of Nisan, March, April, in our calendar. God switches the calendar around for some very interesting reasons. And then it says, speak to the congregation of Israel, say in the tenth day of this month, They shall take to every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. All these details are so important. And the whole congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. I'll mention that in a moment. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and the upper posts, of the house wherein they shall eat. This lamb is to be without blemish. It's going to be a male. On the fourteenth day, this lamb is to be 
slain, his blood is to be shed. And there's a do it in the evening. Now, Moses, in the Hebrew, we could have had a number of words. The word that we have here is the Hebrew word bayan, and it literally means between. So if we were to transliterate that, it's saying that the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it between the evenings. Now, they did celebrate this in the evening, and traditionally from then on, the Jews celebrate their Passover in the evening. Jesus celebrated the Last Supper, which was the Passover celebration, on the Wednesday evening. But he was crucified on the Thursday before the next evening. He was crucified between the evenings. They're told that this lamb that they are to kill, whose blood is going to make atonement for their sin, was to be killed between the evenings. And that's exactly what happened. And they're told they're to eat with their loins girded, shoes on their feet, staff in hand. You shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. And God explains. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. So this then is the final plague. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood... I will pass over you and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. So, in summary, there was to take a lamb on the tenth day of the month. It was the tenth day of the month when Jesus rode into Jerusalem and was effectively taken by the people. They worshipped him. They sang, as we sang earlier, Hosanna, save now. The lamb had to be perfect. Of course, Jesus was perfect. On the 14th day, they were to kill the lamb between the evenings. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus. And the blood of the lamb was to be on the lintels and the doorposts, just as Christ's blood was on the upper beams and the upright of the cross. But those who put their trust in that blood are saved. When you look at a timetable of Passion Week, you see that... Sorry, the text is a bit skewed there. But what we see is that on the 10th, the day of the triumphal entry, Jesus effectively was taken. On the 14th, the Passover is when our lamb was slain. Paul tells us that Christ was our Passover. There were four cups that the Jews would then traditionally, as part of the celebration of Passover, celebrate. Drawn from Exodus 6, I will bring you out. I will rid you of their bondage, I will redeem you, and I will take you for a people to myself, effectively. It's interesting that at the Last Supper, Jesus celebrates the first three cups with the disciples. I will bring you out, I will rid you of bondage, I will redeem you. But the one he doesn't drink of, the one he says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until that day I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom, there's one cup still to go, and that's that I will take you out. I will take you to me for a people. And that is still coming. That day when we will have that incredible privilege of being taken to the place that he's preparing for us. As I say, that last one wasn't taken at the Last Supper. Jesus said that that is still to be drunk from. Just to close now, there's a little song that's sung by the Jews at Passover time and kind of this a response thing 
there's uh, these five stanzas, if you like, of leaving st- slavery. Just let me, in closing, just read this to you. If he had brought us out of Egypt, but left them, the Egyptians, armed, it would have been enough. In other words, it would have been over. If you remember, their arms were stripped of them through the Red Sea. If they might have been smashed, but their gods left unharmed, it would have been enough. Again, that phrase, it would have been enough, it would have been over, would have had no future. If it had dealt with their gods, but the firstborn still healthy, it would have been enough. If it had slain their firstborn, but with Egypt still wealthy, it would have been enough. If it had given to us their wealth, but not split the sea, it would have been enough. If it had split the sea, but no dry path free, it would have been enough. If he had led us through on dry land, but they had not been drowned, it would have been enough. If Pharaoh had perished, but no food had been found, again referring to the manna, it would have been enough. If he had provided for our needs, but manna had been missing, it would have been enough. If he had fed us with manna, but no Sabbath blessing, it would have been enough. If he had given us manna, but no Sabbath blessing, it would have been enough. If he had given us Sabbath, but no Torah to teach, it would have been enough. If he had given us the Torah, but no land to reach, it would have been enough. If he had brought us into the land, but without our own shrine, but stay. He built the temple for us, the house of his choosing, array. You realize that what God did for the Jews is just a model of what he's done for us. And if there had been anything left undone, it would have been enough, it would have been over. But our Savior has done everything. And we have the joy of dwelling with him for eternity when he takes us to that place he's been preparing for us. And then we go on to the new heavens and new earth and new Jerusalem. It's all been done. We ought to also say, hooray, let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this incredible book, this record you've given us of the Exodus, of, Lord, how humans can be so stubborn despite all the evidence, still refusing to repent and acknowledge you. And, Lord, we see how, by your grace, you protected your own people you stirred their hearts Lord you prepared them and then Lord you called them to leave the world that they knew to a walk by faith with you and Lord you've done the same for us help us to trust you knowing that Lord you have done everything thank you Lord again for these things Lord just impress them upon our hearts and minds we pray that we would grow in knowledge of you and in your grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.